0: and listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio, on with the show. Hello, Take On Board peoples. Welcome to yet another special Take on Board Podcast. This week you'll be hearing an edited version of a recent Take on Board event. You'll hear me in conversation with Linda White about her insights into the voluntary administration of two major Australian airlines, Virgin Australia and Ansett Airlines. You'll then hear an incredibly insightful Q&A session where the Take On Board community get to ask the questions directly. Note, this isn't all of the event. There were some other stories that Linda shared that stayed Chatham House. So if you want to hear the full story for these events, you need to be there. Which means you might want to book as soon as you can for the next one, which is on Tuesday the 29th of September. At this one, we'll be hearing from Danielle Jacobs about their hot-off-the-press research from her and others in Wellbeing Lab. She'll take us through the insights from a survey of more than 1,500 Australian workers on how they're coping during COVID times. And then we'll have a discussion on how boards can understand and proactively and efficiently manage workplace wellbeing in a rapidly changing COVID environment. Super early bird tickets until the 15th of September. There's a link in the show notes or get in touch if you want a book. I look forward to seeing you there and to facilitating more knowledge and relationships amongst the Take On Board community. Hello, and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halja Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together, we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. So, with all of those formalities out of the way, let me very briefly introduce myself. I think I've met most people here, but my name's Hennie Uh As many of you know, I am a uh, host of the Take On Board podcast. And also a coach and a facilitator. I am passionate about gender equity on boards. And I'm also on a couple of boards. I'm on the board of the Royal Women's Hospital here in Melbourne and the Accident Compensation Conciliation Service also here in Melbourne. Some of you know that I run a range of programs. So there is the board Kickstarter program, which supports women to get on boards. I think there's probably a few people here that have done that and also the Board Accelerator Program, which supports women once they're on boards. Last but not least, there's also the podcast, and there's a couple of people, as I look around today, there's a couple of people here who have been on the podcast. So who can I say first? Leonie was on the podcast way back when talking about gender equity and mentoring and diversity on boards. Jocelyn has been on the podcast twice now, talking about the decision about closing the school and also about setting up an advisory board. Linda, who you're going to hear from today, has been on the podcast, and I think Dominique is here somewhere as well. Anyway, there are others. Over in the chat box, you will see some introductory questions. When I pop you into your breakout rooms, what your name is, how come you're here, how you're feeling, and something you're proud of from the last month or so. I'm going to open the rooms. Rooms are open. Now everyone's joined us back. Hope you all got to make some connections there. When I popped into one of the rooms, it's like, oh, yes, afterwards, I'd like to keep in touch with you. So just know that in the introductory booklet that you all got, you've got everybody's contact details if you want to follow people up. Uh, It is one of the things I love about this is that you get to follow people up afterwards. Today we are recording that special Take On Board event live with a little light. And you'll be hearing me ask her about the union perspective on the voluntary administration of both anset 20 years ago and more recently virgin australia linda is the assistant national secretary of the australian services union she's on the boards of the chipley research center the australian center for the moving image the melbourne cricket ground trust and also the portable long service leave governing board Whilst today is not directly a boardroom perspective, because as the union person, she's not on the boards of, wasn't on the board of ANSET and nor on the board of Virgin Australia, we'll hear her impressions from the other side. We'll get her insights into maybe some of the telltale signs that we should be on the lookout for for those that are on boards. And um, if I can get them out of her, possibly a few war stories as well from that time. <laughs> So welcome, Linda, to this Take On Board live recording. Thanks, Talia. Linda, let's take you back to 2001. And I should say, Linda and I were working together at that time. I was the Assistant Secretary of the Victorian branch of the union. Linda is the Assistant Secretary of the national side of the union. If I can take you back to that time, Linda, it was a pretty extraordinary time in the world and in the airline industry. So it was September 2011, if that rings any bells for people. The September 11 stuff had just happened. And by the Friday of that week, week where the world had gone mad, ANSET had been grounded. So it wasn't a great week for the industry of the world. So whilst it might've seemed sudden to the outside world in terms of Ansett, certainly September 11 seemed sudden, when did you get your first inkling that things might have gone pear-shaped at ANSEC?
1: Look, it was over quite a few months. Like it wasn't. It wasn't a sudden event, um, really. It was over a few months. I think the probably the the big thing for me was when the Singapore Airlines, the Singapore Airlines owned Air New Zealand, who in turn owned, or they were a major shareholder in, sorry, in Air New Zealand. It was when the Singapore Airlines Singapore CEO came to Melbourne to our office to visit us, which would have been three, maybe four months beforehand. That is not something that would normally happen. And he was clearly seeing a range of other people, but he came to see us to talk about what he thought was the situation and how things were pretty bad. There was also a fairly significant incident in March when they had to shut down. They had to shut down their 767s because of a maintenance problem where they all all hadn't had regular maintenance. And so it was this gradual thing. It wasn't just overnight. And, um, you know, as as the record will show, they actually had contemplated their administration the weekend before. It wasn't the September 11 that put them into administration. They had actually had PwC in the weekend before. And there was a lot of political lobbying on the way on the lead-up to it, a bit like uh, has been with Virgin. So it was a long thing. It was not just this sudden, let's go into administration because of September 11. It was in trouble well before
0: that. What's the union's role in administration, whether it was ANSET, whether it's Virgin today? What's the union's role?
1: It's to make sure that our members uh, who are creditors get their full entitlements. That's pretty much it. And so in these complex and airline administrations are really complex. The uh, employees have priority, but they don't have priority over secured creditors. And Mm. remarkably in ANSET, there was barely a secured creditor. There were a few creditors who owned engines of aircraft, but there were barely any. And so that was um, really useful. But, you know, you represent creditors, and if anybody's been involved in administration, the key thing for power in, in administrations is numbers and amounts of uh, that you're owed. And so numbers can also often trump the amount owed. And so the view is to marshal all of the employee creditors so that you can do significant things and make sure that you get your entitlements if the company can't trade or if some people have to leave the organisation that they get their full entitlements so that's really it's a crucial thing but you can also sway you get to vote on who gets to be the buyers etc it's very critical to marshal people
0: I can't recall now whether it was official or unofficial but also get a say in who the administrators even are There was a change of administrators during the ANSET one. Can you talk us through that?
1: Yeah, well, look, the uh, company had appointed PwC. I think they had been doing some work. They'd met with the board on the weekend. I think they had been doing internal work previously. They were the chosen ones. Mm -hmm. They weren't great. The, uh, The lead guy was hopeless and he sort of, Sorry, I can't remember his name, Um, but he was not much top. And um, he looked like he was under strain after kind of two days. And the unions marshaled together uh, because there were 16,500 employees. Um, and we marshaled together and actually changed the um, administrators. You've got to have a meeting at that time. You had to have it within five days or seven days, um, five working days. You had to have the meeting, and and we changed the administrators at the first meeting by using the six and a half thousand proxies that we got, and we changed it to a fledgling company who's well known now, a Mentor. That was their first big gig. They'd previously been Arthur Anderson. Partners Arthur Anderson had collapsed under. I forget which one it was. One of the big American collapses. They had been implicated in that, and then they Arthur Anderson Worldwide collapsed, and they moved on to form Quorumenter. And they were um, compelling. They also offered a very good deal on their fees, which proved to be important, given the administration took ten years.
0: And of course, that's important because, as you'd said before, and I hadn't realised this until I was involved in this administration as well that. The employees, of course, are owed money, as you just said earlier. They're owed money, and it's all about getting, making sure they get their entitlements because they're first in line, or were first in line with ANSET. So then, CordaMentha brings us to more recent times. Virgin Australia is now in voluntary administration, also being managed by CordaMentha. When did you get your first inkling about Virgin?
1: Sorry, it's not ah. being uh, administered by Quartermenta, it's being administered by Deloitte's. But ah, there, okay. early on there was a, uh, but Quartermentor have represented a couple of the buyers in this and they're currently an advisor to the successful buyer who's bane uh, When did I get first inkling? October last year. Um, last year I said to a number of my younger colleagues, I thought they were gonna go to administration. They looked askance at me like, what's she talking about this crazy person? What do you mean? It's going to go into administration and I said it again uh, in early March to them I said like because the signs are all there back in October they were oh they had too much debt they put money into Velocity um, they bought back Velocity which they'd mm-hmm. sold previously because they were cash problems but they were too burdened and with a weakening economy you could just see that all they needed was a small incident or something small to tip them over and it wasn't just the pandemic that tipped them over anything could have done it in my view
0: so some of the warning signs I've heard from you there levels of debt and keeping an eye on levels of debt and also obviously the state of the economy is there any other the kind of telltale warning signs that you think from either of these events you know are are useful for people to hear
1: oh look I mean airlines is very specific you know it's a very hard business um, and you really have to know your business pretty well but it's if you're at a consumer confidence business if you're in a very tight market where uh, where you haven't got many levers to pull then those are the things that are going to and there's no way out right and yeah if you've got overburdening debt and there's really very little way to service that debt and you depend on one thing, which Virgin... I mean, they've got a very good frequent flyer program, which didn't go into administration. That's their velocity. It didn't go into administration. But it's really debt and where your income's going to come from. And, you know, hopes and prayers are not going to do it in those sort of circumstances, as I can see it. As I said, I don't think it wasn't the pandemic that pushed them over. Anything could have pushed them over because of the way in which the circumstances in which they were and the debt that they're carrying was just massive
0: and in fact you know just in terms of cash flow i think you were saying yesterday the second report of the administrators came out mm. any key things from that you would like to share well, who, who knew
1: who knew they might have been trading insolvent for three days who knew right mm-hmm. um so uh they of course the directors are never going to admit that that was the case but it won't come to anything if it unless it goes into liquidation but I don't find that surprising in the least. It also talks about that velocity issue that they were overburdened by debt. Like, it was a really good idea, but I think it's a real lesson for uh, boards. Like, don't spend money you don't have um, in a circumstance. You know, even if it's a great idea, You've got to put risk against reward, and that's what really tipped them. They were already laden with debt, but this was the kind of the last straw in my view good idea though right but bad idea for the circumstances they were in as the record will show they were incredibly buoyant and very happy you know they were saying kind of crazy things which was very unfortunate like about how good it was and all that and it just wasn't objectively true and that was very it's been very bad for the employees because they are a bit They've been overly optimistic um, about things, and when private equity buys your company, you're like it's not a pleasant experience, right? They are trying to get money out from day one, um, and so everything is very under scrutiny. Job losses, reorganizations, a whole thing. And if you're not, if you don't see that coming, you really, you know, that's pretty hard on the employees, as we currently speak. Very hard.
0: You know, in representing the employees. I'm imagining that you have have had a mountain of difficult choices during both this one and the last one, and probably some of the ones in between. Is there any of those difficult choices you're able to tell us about?
1: Oh, there's lots of difficult choices. Like, you know, ANSET was a whirlwind, you know. ANSET, um, I think Karen Corrie's on the line. She was involved uh, with Tesna. Tesna was the bidder. There was only one bidder. That was uh, Solomon Liu, uh, Lindsay Fox bid. And it fell over like within a day before or two days before it was about to finalise, right? They'd actually purchased, put in orders for aircraft and did a whole lot of things. And so that was incredibly difficult. And it was a very difficult thing dealing with them. Fox and um, Lou, I dealt with Fox and had to, he wasn't keen on our union um, representing people. And that's another story, but myself and now minister, foley i had to make a pilgrimage to his turak home to appeal to him as to why the asu should have coverage in tesna and have be able to represent people and that was a very scarred on my my, uh, my on me the other thing is also you know clearly in these administrations both administrations dealing with politicians about this industry has been quite interesting back in um 2001 with john anderson who was hopeless and this time around you know i don't think the current minister is much better and so mind us who is the
0: current minister
1: the deputy prime minister who um, i'll think of his name i can picture <laughs> him anyway yes the deputy prime minister unfortunately the transport portfolio is always, always goes to nationals and I'm, I'm not sure that's a great choice for the world in which we live um but you know they certainly don't value aviation particularly well and um or they don't want to have intervention and so both times dealing with politicians and seeing how they deal with industry policy is or is very enlightening too and um mm-hmm. can't depend on them that's for sure you know there's all sorts of things you know the things that we had to do in the first week September eleven. is how do you know is we were about to have industrial action Uh, On September 12 at Qantas for the first time in many, many years, we had to flip that, move to something else. And then by the following Sunday, I was back in Sydney. I had to get a flight to Sydney to see Qantas to um, try and negotiate with Qantas because they ended up with 90% of the market immediately as soon as Ansett stopped. So, you know, you learn a lot in those things and, you know, how to get proxies, what to do, all of those things. You've got to juggle a thousand things, legal, media, members the whole thing it's a whirlwind and it continues and it's exactly the same thing with Virgin as I said dealing with politicians dealing with the members dealing with them you know this time around in Virgin there were more buyers there were five at least five contenders for it uh, which was better than last time but you know, I always have the feeling that it's never going to quite complete because I've been there, done that. When Chesna didn't complete, didn't complete, and you know that that pushed that administration into ten years before they mm-hmm. managed to realise all of the assets. Everybody got about 96 cents in the dollar, but it took ten years for them to get it. 96 in the cents in the dollar for the employees. The other creditors got nothing.
0: I'm also guessing, whilst there's been some difficult choices in all of this, I'm guessing there's been some really lovely moments as well, uh, again, whether it's Virgin or ANSET. Can you tell us about any of those kind of heartwarming moments? Yeah, sometimes
1: university people shine, That you, like, who they just take that opportunity and shine, and I do think that's been a takeaway thing for me. So we saw we had to get our 4,500 proxies together in five days, um, we'd been misled, about what the form had to be um, and we had to read the form had to be redraft so we lost a day but we had you know the organization of our ASU delegates on the ground so that's just the local members of the union who worked for, for ANSET was spectacular. And some of those people uh, were already pretty good, but they saw in themselves a potential that was greater than they could have ever imagined. And so one of the ones that I can really remember is there was a call centre at ANSET in Launceston and the woman who was the head delegate there um, Jodie Campbell was her name. Uh, she ended up becoming mayor of Launceston and then she became the member for BASS, uh, federal member for BASS. And really she would credit you know, that as the d- disaster in ANSET and the organisation that was thrust upon her. She was already very good, but just took it to another level that kind of launched her into a political career and there were plenty of other people who suddenly saw that and um, they loved anset but they found the potential in doing other things and there was heaps of heaps of those kind of stories there are other bad things though where people just did not could not get over it could not yeah. get over the fact that the whole thing had fallen over yeah you know will be the same here in virgin like it'll be exactly the same in virgin it's a slightly different culture in virgin in that there was very much a love version of everything, and As I said, I think there'll be a lot more people that have burnt this time around because they believed the crap they were told.
0: <laughs> Folks, we haven't got the full story from Lindy here yet, but what I'm going to do is pop you back into breakout rooms because can I ask people to use Slido to put questions in? You can also upvote questions. So if there's other things that you want, and then when we come back again, we're going to have another 15 minutes or so to answer the questions that you actually want answered. So you'll be in rooms of three or four. You've got 10-ish minutes. Uh, Rooms are now open. Welcome back, everybody. So I will moderate this as we go, but I'm going to ask people, if you can, to ask your own question. So our first question that comes from you, Dominique, uh, Linda, if you could see that Version was in trouble back in October, uh why couldn't the board?
1: I think they could, but it's a very big thing if you're a professional director to suddenly put your show into administration, right? And you hope against hope that some good thing is gonna happen or it's not gonna it's not gonna go. You know, what you think is gonna happen is is gonna happen. I mean, I talked to the CEO, he says, oh, I never saw it coming. I go, Well, why are you a CEO mm-hmm. if you couldn't see it coming? I couldn't see it coming. Um, I don't know if that's just bravado, but it's a big thing. I pondered this a bit. Like, ANSET, they waited too long, right? And so with ANSET, the reason it collapsed is because it was, there were three airlines. I think at that time Virgin could have collapsed as well. And it was really a question. And what they did is they unfortunately left it too long to go into administration. They had intended to go into administration and trade out. They could have done that. But the intervening act was September 11, and that made it difficult. In this one, maybe waiting wasn't a bad thing for them because how do you ever get a situation where you get the government to subsidise your workers, you get to reorganise, around um, and you basically attract a whole bunch of people who are after distressed assets and there were five or six bidders three of whom were really serious right so in waiting it benefited Virgin because of what they got like it might not complete I don't know I uh, don't quote me on this but I was given the Tesna example I always think you just can't you don't know and the market is getting worse and worse but they would have paid a rock bottom price for what they've got private equity are used to doing that sort of stuff but you know it, this one attracted a whole lot of distressed assets and it's a distressed asset buyers uh, and last time it was far more difficult and it didn't attract anybody and so I think that if I'd been answered I would have gone much earlier and then they could have traded out of it and then it would have been virgin who were gone. Um, in this one I think probably by not going, it wasn't their skill. Luckily, the tipping over um, event was so massive. Like, literally, they've got six months of government subsidy for their workers. They've uh, they've been able to do it quickly and they've had a flood of buyers, but at a low price. And they were also dysfunctional at Virgin. And I, that was the same at ANSET. The director was a bit dysfunctional. They were dysfunctional. In, and the other thing I'd say about airlines is it's really ridiculous to have directors and shareholders are in the same industry and that's what happened with both of them um, when you look at it dispassionately and so when there's a major thing that affects the whole industry well they flee back to their own country and their own airline right and so I think that would be the same for any business like if you're in if you've got people who are shareholders in your business are in the same business and something catastrophic happens that affects that whole business then you're in deep trouble so you've got to be very careful about that. And that's happened twice now with Ante- with ANSET and virgin. Those There are a lot of common characters.
0: Yvette, your question's next. Linda, nice to see you, by the way. Uh, you indicated that you knew the virgin collapse was coming. How do you use that knowledge? Who can you warn? What can you do with the information? It's just like carrying a big rock around with you. <laughs>
1: oh I want I warned our people my duty and the union is to the members and I've gone I've said to out these organizers who looked at me askance like how do you know this and I go like it's gonna happen they look at me yeah yeah sure she's raving how does she know and I go like it's gonna happen and then they all now say anything I now say is measured against the fact that I was right against that well they hadn't realized I've been right many times but anyway this one <laughs> like, was a big right what we had to do is position a bit better right so we positioned ourselves ready for this and I said it to them we've got to get ready for this we have to how we're we going to bargain what we're going to do you know we were about to start bargaining I said I'm not sure that we should start bargaining right this very minute because I think bad things are going to happen and so we shouldn't be rushing into all of this we should hold what we have rather and worry about that later. But I did warn them and I said we better get our organisation very, very, very ready for something like getting creditors, doing things and so getting um, proxies and getting ready for that. And that's what I said to them months ahead. Uh, But we also stopped. We decided not to bargain because I just didn't want us to be in the middle of bargaining in a circumstance where we really didn't know what the whole thing was so we've got an open agreement at the moment it's expired you know that what happens in administration is they try and negotiate you know you've got to renegotiate and so we are going to renegotiate but also like what we would have renegotiated at the beginning of all of this versus what we're going to do now is quite different because now we've been, people have been stood down for months on end. People understand that way more. And there's a lot more things that are far more important and um, that we have to think about. But yeah, I warned them and we got ready.
0: Um, Michelle, your question has been rocketing up the charts and you're next. Thank you, Helia. Hi, Linda. So my question is, is a two parter. Number one, I'm on a board and I can see this train wreck coming, but I appear to be the only one. What's your Mm. advice about how I would call that out? Part two is, and what if I'm an emerging female board member or even an established female board member? And when um, uh, we were having a chat in the breakout room, Nicole and I, about some of the glass cliffs that females find themselves on. What do you do if you're number one, the only one who appears to see it? Your voice is not being heard. But if you are that emerging female board leader,
1: what's your advice? I mean, I'm in the business of winning the hearts and minds. Right, that's what I do day in day out. So, how do you do that? It's conversations. It's, it's um, winning people and talking to them. Like, so I would be talking to people. Like, your only forum is not the forum in the. You know, when you sit around the board table, the forum is everybody that you talk to behind the scenes when you, uh, if you need to, and that's how you do it. Like you just have to have conversations, talk to people, and bring to people together. As I said, in the battle of hearts and minds, and minds always against employer, not against, but you know, the employers have to say one thing. Then you have got to talk logically, be straight shooting. Listen to what people say, if it changes your mind, be open to other viewpoints, um, but also work on it. That's it, if that's what you think. That's, to me, the only way to convince people. And sometimes you win and sometimes you... Or sometimes they listen to you and sometimes they don't. And if they don't and you were right, then... (laughs) Remarkably, they listen to you again. Yes. <laughs> they listen to you next time. And so, you know, like every post isn't gonna you know be a winner and that's might not be the, the right way to do it. But I, I just think dialogue is the most important thing and to talk to people and put your point of view. I would never be scared to be a point of view. And those who've been on boards with me will know that I'm not afraid to be in the minority. You can't be afraid to be in the minority if that's what you truly believe. You can't be a contrarian all the time though. No if you believe something seriously, then you're mad not to. And as I said, uh, sometimes <coughs> everybody comes around to your opinion because something happens that changes their mind or you've changed their mind. And so I, I, that's, that's how
0: I would handle it, basically. Jenny, you're next in the list. Could you ask your question? Thanks, Halya. So, Linda, the pandemic is seen as a black swan event. Um, interested to know, did any of your boards have any foresight or risk management strategies in place to deal with an
1: event of this sort of magnitude? Uh, I don't think so. Like, I don't think the MCG Trust ever thought that the AFL grand final could possibly go anywhere other than Melbourne. No, not in anyone's wildest dreams. And I still think they're going to try and hold it here. No, um, no look, these things are so wildly out. But I think that what I've seen on the boards is... The ability to take on the challenges and move very quickly about what about the challenges and i'm on you know three so the portal long service lead well, board that has affected the working in a couple of the industries and we've had to deal with that um and mcg clearly afl no nothing the whole business is around one thing uh and then acme too um that actually worked in favor of, of acme because we were renovating and was a bit behind time and you would never know that right so but it's also opened up a whole lot of doors about how things should be done digitally so i do think that no nobody ever plans for it but the smart people it's one thing to know what the problem is it's another thing to know what how to fix it and what the solutions are it's like doing focus groups people tell you all the things yes but what does it mean and what do we now do right and the to me the smart money and the smart people are the ones who can hear what is being said and know what to do and go, right, here's our systems for getting through this and how are we going to do it? How do we analyse it? What are other people doing? What ideas have we had? Can we bring something from the back shelf that we've always been wanting to do because the opportunity provides it for us? And those, I think, if you have that sort of methodology, but nobody plans for a bad thing, but I always think adversity brings opportunity. Bad things can happen, but you can absolutely make the best of it if you think laterally and can understand what's going on. I might be a bit naive, but that's what I like. I think I am a half glass, half full person mostly.
0: All right, Tamara, yours has been bubbling around as the second question and it's finally got itself up to the top. You're the final question for today. Thank you, Helia. Linda, this is not my area at all administration. So a normal administration could go for 10 years and that's normal, but that really really blew my head off to think that a process like that could take so long. Do you mind talking a little bit about what that looks like? Does that mean um a mentor, a meeting daily for ten years or is it once a week they're doing a bit or once a month? I just can't imagine how something goes for ten years and what that process looks like.
1: Okay, so the first thing is they're trying to find a buyer, right? So that's the frenetic activity. So they're trying to find someone who will buy it, and that's what they tried to do. But they couldn't find a buyer, so then they have to they have to liquidate the assets, right? So in a complex business, they've got to sell the assets. First of all, yeah, they put propositions about who could buy it. So in Virgin, what they've done is there are five buyers. They chose, you know, they they evaluate those buyers in a very short period of time, and then they go forward, and then they've got to go to a creditors meeting to get the creditors agree. Because what the creditors are doing is saying we're not going to take we're gonna lose a whole lot of money. Um, We're gonna wipe away our debts. And so they always form like a creditors, they call it the committee of inspection, but it's like a creditors committee. And so that creditors committee went for 10 years on ANSET because they couldn't get a buyer. And so they had to liquidate. So they had to sell everything. And so there's a lot to sell. ANSET had a lot of assets. Um, One of the fascinating things is, is that there were some businesses in ANSET that never stopped. So they had uh, simulators, they never stopped work. Um, They were, uh, and the simulators are where pilots go and train, train, right? So that continued on. They also had, because they had, you know, lots of different aircraft, um, they had lots of spare parts, and that was a really very large business. And then they also had, they owned their planes, a lot of planes they owned. They didn't own some engines, but they owned their planes. And so systematically they were selling those planes and those parts and all of the assets. They had a lot of real they had real estate. So they're selling them down and they're trying to get the best price. They're trying to and they're dealing with creditors, a lot always a lot of litigation as well in things from creditors, like Diners Club had a big there was big litigation both against and and the administrators against it and the the creditors against and so there's a lot of stuff but they were mostly selling things so the interesting story in anset is is that they did sell quite a lot of their planes but they were old planes and so i remember on one credit so we weren't meeting weekly we might have worked in the later years probably. Uh, quarterly they would give a report but that was reporting on and they would ask creditors committee they got a job lot offer for all the maintenance parts really early from one of those guys, uh, Stoddart, who does F1 racing out of interest. But that, he made his business out of airline parts. He made an offer very early for the whole lot, and they made a decision not to take that offer. He might have offered a couple of million bucks. They sold it in the end for about $20 million by slow, slowly stop selling it, and, and that was net of fees, right? So they did pretty well. But they were selling the planes, clapped-out planes, to people like Russian mafia, drug dealers in South America and people like that because clapped-out planes don't have much of a market. So the Russian mafia, I remember this, they said, oh, we're not banking on the final payment for this plane because, you know, who's going to go to Russia and ask them for the final payment? All African countries who don't have many airlines were buying them as well, but they really... They had searched the world to sell them and they did a lot better. And so that's why they got like 96 or 7 cents in the dollar because they were slowly selling. And their fees, the union organised at the start, they really did it at a very cut price rate. Uh, And so the fees were nowhere near what the market would have, what PwC would have done, right? It's really selling all the assets to get every cent in the dollar for uh, the creditors. But in that situation, only the employers got the money. No creditor got anything.
0: Thank you, Linda. Normally, I would be handing over you a little gift. I'll have to do it metaphorically. It will come in the mail instead. But thank you so much for sharing some of the stories, some of the wisdom, some of the um, hot tips for us. Just fantastic. Yay. Thank you so much, folks. I always love spending the morning in these. I would prefer to be in the room with you, but the opportunity of doing it this way is we get... You know, our Canadian friends are here, our Northern Australia friends are here as well. So thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you all again soon. Thanks so much, Helia. Pleasure. Thank Thanks, folks. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, Helia. Thanks very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. See ya. Thanks, Sue. See ya. So that's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thank you for being part of the conversation. As you know, I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together and I think we're stronger together. So as always, I'd love it if you could share this podcast with someone you know and ask them to subscribe. But this week, I've got a specific ask. I'm going to try and experiment for the next few weeks. Each week, I'm going to ask you if you can share this podcast with someone you know from a specific area. So this week, we're going to New Zealand. Do you know someone in New Zealand that would be interested in all things governance, that would like to hear the voices of women in the boardroom? If so, I would love it if you could share this podcast with them and ask them to subscribe. Thank you so much for being part of the Take On Board community and tune in next week for more tips and tricks on being your best in the boardroom.